Babylon. The very name conjures images of sexual indulgence. But were the Babylonians much different from us today? The question I want to ask, as silly as it may sound, is how did ancient peoples do it? Now I know that might sound like the kind of thing that should have been answered long ago by an awkward birds and the bees speech from your dad, but there's more to it than that. I mean, was the Babylonian bedroom basically the same as ours? How much of our sexual repertoire, you know, the positions, the techniques, and so on, how much of that varies across cultures, and how much is pretty much the same in all times and all places wherever you go? Are there acts common now, but not common then? And if so, why? Today, we can survey our sexual repertoire from depictions in popular media, porn springs to mind, it may give a slightly distorted picture, but you know there's other things like the TV series Sex in the City, for example, which gives us an intimate glimpse of the sex lives of modern women. But did you know that we get pretty much the same thing for women 3,000 years ago. The Babylonian form of writing, cuneiform, was inscribed into clay tablets that have survived the eons surprisingly well, meaning we basically have HBO for ancient Babylon. Or would this be Skinamax? You decide. In any case, that's what we're talking about in today's Deep Dive episode. I'm B.T. Newberg, and this is the history of sex. History of Sex is sponsored by Dr. Jillian Kenny, historian of women, sex, and magic in medieval Europe. I want to thank our Patreon patron, Avery Parat, for making this episode possible. Also, a special shout-out to our launch team members, David Sheely and Ray Hicks. Folks, today's going to be a fun one, and I'm Pretty sure if you're listening to a show called The History of Sex, you know what you're getting yourself into, right? But just in case it's not completely obvious, today's gonna get a little dirty. You've been warned. So, how did the ancient Babylonians have sex? Well, I know that you're all hot and bothered, but first we should get a super quick primer on who the Babylonians were, and then we'll find out what their bedroom was like. And along the way, we'll learn a lot about what their gender roles were like, too. And folks, I won't blame you if, like an old VHS recording of Taxicab Confessions, you fast-forward till you get to the good part. All right, here we go. So Babylon made its bed in the Fertile Crescent, a strip of land between the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers in modern-day Iraq. It was one of several prominent civilizations of ancient Mesopotamia taking part in a cultural sphere going all the way back to ancient Sumer, the world's oldest known city-building culture. Now, cities began to spring up in the Fertile Crescent of Mesopotamia somewhere between five and 7,000 years ago. And along with that development came writing, 
which began as a means of keeping track of goods. I mean, you literally had business receipts in the form of clay tablets that were broken in two and each party kept half so that if there was ever a dispute later, they could put them together to prove that the transaction took place. They also wrote letters and even invented envelopes. Yes, clay envelopes. A letter would be written and then wrapped in another sheet of clay, the envelope, and then the letter might be written again on the outside of the envelope. And if anyone ever suspected that the message had been tampered with, you could then break open the envelope and inside would be the original letter. And if the two messages didn't match up, well, you knew that foul play was afoot. This and many other fascinating and surprisingly modern feeling things were commonplace in ancient Babylon, which reached about 200,000 people at its height and is thought to have been, for a time at least, the largest city in the world. Now, you've likely heard of Babylon due to biblical influence, possibly via Bob Marley, you know the song, By the Reavers of See, Babylon was an on-again, off-again empire, and when it conquered the ancient Hebrew kingdom of Judah, well, it forcibly relocated its intellectuals from Jerusalem to Babylon, and that kinda left a bad taste in their mouths, to put it lightly. Ever since, the Judeo-Christian tradition has depicted Babylon as the ultimate sin city. hotbed of sex and licentiousness. And even today, popular media is still playing on that trope. I mean, just recently there was a German-made series called Babylon Berlin, depicting the seedy cabaret scene of Berlin during the Weimar period before World War II, which we've been hearing about in our Sex in the Third Reich series. So in short, the very name Babylon today has become nearly synonymous with sex. So that is a super quick introduction to Babylon as it was and as it is today in the popular imagination. Now, if you're interested in more, we go much deeper into ancient Mesopotamia in our cuneiform series on my other show, Dead Ideas. But for our purposes on this show, well, let's get to the good stuff. So how did the ancient Babylonians have sex? Well, we know how they had sex from their writings, from their clay tablets. And the kind of writing might surprise you. No, it wasn't the original edition of Fifty Shades of Clay. It was their divination manuals. Divination, you know, like tarot cards or even a magic eight ball, where you see portents in the future in seemingly unconnected events, that kind of thing. The ancient Babylonians saw omens everywhere, including in bed. The Shuma'alu, written in Akkadian in the first millennium BCE from folklore no doubt much older, compiles some 10,000 omens covering everything from weather to weird animal births, and tablets 103 and 104 are the ones dealing with sex. Now these tablets, which I'm sure archaeologists insist they only read for the articles, teaches a surprising amount about ancient sexual practices. Here's why. See, the Babylonians considered it a prodigious event 
when you are getting your freak on, and then something unexpected, uncontrolled, or accidental happened. Sex was considered a potential medium of divine communication. All right, let's get an example. So here's an example of a Babylonian sex omen as translated by historian Anne Guinan. If a man repeatedly stares at his woman's vagina, his health will be good. He will lay his hands on whatever is not his. Hmm, outlook good. Here's another example. If a man is with a woman and while facing him, she repeatedly stares at his penis, whatever he finds will not be secure in his house. Hmm, outlook not so good. You could just imagine that bedroom scene. Hmm, hey, Eyes up here, missy. Now, a few things about these omens before we get to what they tell us about the ancient sexual repertoire. First of all, we can already see, just from these two examples, something that stands out a little uncomfortably to our modern Western eyes. Did you notice that both are exclusively from the male perspective and regard only the male's fortune? Oh, did I forget to mention that most ancient Mesopotamian cultures were highly patriarchal? No surprise there, I guess. That's not to say that women couldn't hold considerable power in ancient Mesopotamia, and in some surprising ways, two words for you, business nuns, but we'll have to come back to that in a future episode. Anyway, for now, yeah, highly patriarchal. Okay, anyhow, another peculiar thing about these omens is they would seem to be under a person's voluntary control, right? I mean... Couldn't you just avert your eyes to avoid the misfortune? Or, you know, conversely, couldn't you do the opposite to gain fortune? I mean, imagine that game. You're like Mario racking up a bunch of coins, but instead of hitting the same block repeatedly, you get girls to stare a pervy long time at your ding-dong. <gasps> so is that why guys send dick pics? I never understood that. Anyway, it seems weirdly easy to game the system, doesn't it? Well, yes, but the thing is, superstitions are often like that. I mean, even today. I mean, think about some of the modern superstitions that we have. Step on a crack, break your mother's back, or find a penny, pick it up, and all the day you'll have good luck. I mean, you could game that all day long by scouring pretty much any street corner for pennies, but no one does because there's a sense that for these things to work, quote-unquote, you have to somehow give yourself over to fate. You have to open to the power of coincidence for that mysterious influence to enter your life. If you try to make it happen, it won't work. And so whether you're picking up a penny on the sidewalk or a guy at the club, you let things out of control just a little, and then suddenly a chill runs through your spine as you realize that you just stared a little too long at that, um and now you perceive an omen in your own behavior. So, whether we're talking about ancient Babylon or the modern West, it's really not all that different. And that's fascinating to me. These omens come from a work written some 3,000 years ago, and yet it's not all that different from our superstitions today. Except for the sex part, of course. Yes, that's pretty different. Which reminds me, we're here to learn about the ancient sexual repertoire. So what can these omens tell us about how people did it 3,000 plus years ago? Well, the two just quoted 
don't tell us all that much that's surprising. Patriarchal? Sure. But let's get to some that are more interesting for sexual repertoire. For example, what did the Babylonians think about masturbation? Were they down with it? Or were they all prudy prudy like the Victorians? Well, here's an omen that lays it out pretty clearly. If a man talks with a woman on a bed, and then he rises from the bed and makes manhood, i.e. masturbates, that man will have happiness and jubilation bestowed upon him. Wherever he goes, all will be agreeable. He will always achieve his goal. Hmm. Well, that kind of leaves the woman out in the cold, but at least it does seem to show masturbation in a positive light. In fact, it kind of sounds like it's about the best thing you could do. Wherever he goes, all will be agreeable and always achieve his goal? Jeez, makes you wonder how any babies actually got made in ancient Babylon. But so what about if you don't just duck out for a wank in the bathroom and you do share that moment together with your partner? What then? Well, here's an omen for just that. If a man causes a woman to repeatedly take hold of his penis, he is not pure. The god will not accept his prayer. So here we can see that the hand job was on the menu. However, it seems that if you ask a woman to do that too often, it's not good somehow. Well, maybe so, because you want to get past third base, right? So what if you go for the home run? Let's say you're really going for it. You're in the throes of passion, twisting and turning. What then? Here's another omen. If a man, a woman mounts him, that woman will take his vigor. For one month, he will not have his personal god. Okay. So here we see a sexual position. This seems to refer to some version of cowgirl or something like that. And it's interesting that the fortune is ill, not good, because cowgirl is a position where the female partner is actually taking the active role, and in many ancient cultures, Mesopotamian ones included, gender was deeply bound up with active and passive dichotomies. Male was generally the active one, and female the passive one. So if that reverses, as in the cowgirl position, that may bode ill for the couple. Now the specific consequence, he will not have his personal god, is worth explaining as well. The personal god in this omen, as well as in the last one, refers to a person's tutelary deity, which is like a guardian angel, kinda, sorta. See, in ancient Mesopotamian religion, you often had a personal deity who would intercede on your behalf with the big shot deities, you know, the ones in the pantheon whose names you've heard of, like Marduk or Ishtar or somebody like that. And this personal deity was a kind of go-between, or middle management, I guess you could say, in the divine bureaucracy. And this intercession by your personal deity was a primary way of establishing good fortune and prosperity in your life. So if you lose that intercession by peeving off your personal god, well, then you're going to become unlucky and ineffectual in all walks of life. That's how they would have seen it you will lose your virility, not just in bed, but in life generally. So this seems to be a pretty significant no-no for the Babylonians. Cowgirl? Uh-uh. Clearly, they knew of the cowgirl position, and 
you know, maybe those who didn't believe in superstition didn't mind it, but those who were superstitious or even just insecure about their masculinity may not have brooked their active role being questioned by a position like this. Homie, don't go there. Babylonian men did not play horsey to your cowgirl. Sorry, girls. And sorry, guys. I mean, really, sometimes you just want a break, right? No cowgirl. Sheesh. Or, you know, on the other hand, it could also have been something that people did all the time, but then there was some ritual to banish the bad luck part of it. Kind of like our modern superstition of throwing a pinch of salt over your shoulder or knocking on wood, that kind of thing. The compendium that we have here, the Summa Alu, doesn't list a ritual specifically for this omen, but it does for others. For example, here's an interesting one. If a man goes to the rectum of a woman lying on her back, and from out of the rectum he goes to the vagina, the demon Sagulhazu will have her. Either the male will die or the female will die. So that the evil does not approach, you should take your bedding and rub her face and then it will not approach her. Whoa, what? <laughs> the demon Sagulhazu? Yikes, yep. The Mesopotamian religious world was full of haunts and spooks as well. And in this case, a pretty pervy one, apparently invoked by an ATV? Is that a thing? I mean, invoking a demon by a sexual position? Uh, that's pretty harsh. Unless, of course, you're into it. You know, I could imagine some gothy Babylonians being down with the demon, you know, painting their nails black and listening to Black Sabbath. But probably most Babylonians would have liked to keep Mr. Sagalhazu at a safe distance, I would guess. Well, conveniently, they have a way to do it. Rubbing the face with the bedding apparently undoes the invocation. I wish I had that feature on email sometimes. I would like to take some of those back as soon as I've sent them. Apparently the Babylonians had that feature for sex. And in fact, many of the omens in the compendium have counteracting rituals like this, which makes you wonder if all of the negative ones can be similarly warded away, even if they just didn't mention it in the compendium. And if so, it may be that the cowgirl position was perfectly frequent in the Babylonian bedroom, just with the ancient equivalent of knocking on wood afterward. Who's to say? Now, let's get back to this Sagalhazu omen, because it's interesting that we see anal sex was clearly on the menu here. And the question is, was that perceived as weird and taboo? And maybe that's part of why the demon gets invoked? I mean, is the subtext here, don't go through the back door or the boogeyman will get you? Is that what they're trying to say? Well, actually, no. In fact, we have tons of literary references to the Babylonian back door, and they seem to be totally fine with it. Historian Jean Batero writes, Sodomy was common. Now, I don't know why anyone in this day and age still calls it sodomy. Apparently, it's still the correct legal definition. But, well, anyway, here's what he says. Sodomy was common with women as well as men. Not only do many figurines testify to the practice, but texts speak of it openly. We even find the practice chosen as a contraceptive. A priestess is mentioned who had herself sodomized to avoid falling pregnant. Now, the priestess that Botero mentions was a kind of sacred personnel 
called a Kadishtu. Now, a Kadishtu was married to a god, and they were forbidden to have children. Note, they were not forbidden to have sex, just forbidden to have children. So, some of them apparently practiced anal sex as a means of keeping their vows while still leading a fulfilling sex life, or at least as fulfilling as it could be in a society like this. Now, speaking of fulfilling sex lives, here's an interesting question. How pleasurable was sex for the typical Babylonian woman? I mean, with the almost exclusively male perspective seen so far, and the highly patriarchal nature of this society, did anyone even care about women's pleasure? Well, it's hard to say, but here's one clue. According to Jean Batero, the Akkadian expression nishi libi, which literally means lifting the heart, refers to a man's ability to unfailingly carry his female partner to orgasm. Now, this suggests that they did, in fact, care about female pleasure. It seems to have been important, perhaps even a point of masculine bravado, to be able to lift a woman to the heights of heavens, as it were. And since not every woman is able to reach that height just by vaginal penetration alone, it seems a reasonable supposition that some extra stimulation of the clitoris was probably involved, and I'm speculating a bit here, but it sounds to me like the Babylonians were probably woke to the clit. Can't say that about every culture in history. So what kinds of bedroom possibilities does that open up? Well, maybe it wasn't the man so much as the woman hitting her own pleasure button. But we have an omen regarding that, too. If, when a man is facing a woman, she handles her vagina, that man is not pure, for the rest of his days, his hand will tremble. Hmm, so it's a no-no for a woman to touch herself in this particular context, which suggests that it must be the man doing the touching. Now, I would think that, if anything, is what would make his hand tremble, you know, from the repetitive motion, you know, if nothing else. But apparently the Babylonians didn't see it that way. So it is looking more and more like Babylonian men probably understood female anatomy and did go to the effort of ensuring that it was good for their partners too. Or at least for their female partners. So far, we've seen only opposite-sex couplings here. But what about same-sex? And how about getting outside the binary altogether, you know, into some transgender territory? What was Babylon like when it came to that kind of funky town? Well, that's what we're going to find out next. But first, we're going to take a short break, and we'll be back after this. Folks, if you want to learn more about the ancient Mesopotamians, why not check out an audiobook on Audible? Audible is offering our listeners a free audiobook with a 30-day trial membership. Just go to audibletrial.com slash btnewberg and browse the unmatched selection of audio programs. Download a title free and start listening. But why Audible? Audible content includes an unmatched selection of audiobooks, original audio shows, news, comedy, and more from the leading audiobook publishers, broadcasters, and entertainers. For example, you can check out the book Babylon, Mesopotamia, and the Birth of Civilization by Paul Krywacek, which I found quite useful in my research. 
Or, if that's not your speed, well, maybe you'd rather dive into Sex and the City, the book that inspired the TV series by Candace Bushnell. Right now, I'm listening to George R.R. Martin's book, Game of Thrones, the book that inspired that series. You can find all these and more on Audible. And if you do, let me know. We can have a little book club together. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com slash btnewberg. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash btnewberg for your free audiobook. And now, The History of Sex presents this. There I was in Babylon. So, how'd you meet him? Yeah, dish girl. Well, I had just arrived in the big city to research my new column, Sex in the City of Babylon. And I was looking up at the ziggurat, you know, one of those giant mud brick temples, tall, Hard. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, yeah. Well, I wasn't watching where I was going when suddenly... Whoa, whoa, watch out! I ran right into him. Oh. <laughs> and the impact knocked his goatskin kilt clear off, oh. exposing his... <gasps> Hammurabi. How big was it? Mm, remember that ziggurat? No. No. <laughs> anyway, he says... Well, uh... <laughs> It appears you have me at a disadvantage. You know the omen. If a woman stares at a man's penis, whatever he finds will not be secure in his house. Hmm. Sounds like you're feeling a bit insecure. Oh, not at all. I don't believe in omens. No? No. But you know what I do believe in? Justice. Justice? Yes. Justice. You know, Hammurabi's code. An eye for an eye, a peep for a peep. You've seen mine, so how about you show me yours? Oh, oh no. So what did you say to that? Hmm, I don't think so. Oh, but it's only fair. You know the other omen. If a man stares at a woman's vagina, his health will be good. He will lay his hands on whatever is not his. You owe me that much. I thought you said you don't believe in omens. Uh, well, uh... Hmm, too bad. I like a man who makes his own fate. Oh, wait, 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 let's do lunch. Mm. No, oh, no, you didn't. Bravo. You go, mm. girl. <laughs> so, are you going to see him again? I don't know. I guess I'll let the omens decide. Oh, no. No, no, no. no. Oh, girl, you gotta get on there. <laughs> I left feeling powerful, potent, and incredibly alive. No one could get in my way. All right, we're back. So everything we've seen thus far has paired a man with a woman. But the pleasures of the Babylonian bedroom were more varied than that, which can be seen in the following omen. If a man has sexual relations with a male houseborn slave, hardship will seize him. So here we clearly see a same-sex coupling going on. It would not be exactly accurate to call it homosexual because homosexuality as a category of identity wasn't really a thing until the 19th century. Before that, such coupling was seen as a discrete act, not an identity or an orientation. It was something that you did, not something that you were. And indeed, it was something that Babylonian men did sometimes do. But there's more interesting stuff going on in this omen than just same-sex bam-bam. What's that bit about the houseborn slave? There seems to be a factor of class or status introduced here. And that factor is highlighted when this omen is paired with another, which goes like this. 
If a man has anal sex with his peer, that man will be foremost among his brothers and his colleagues. So here we clearly see sex between peers, males of equal social status, and the fortune is quite different in this case. In the case of the house slave, hardships befall. But in the case of the peer, it's like a catapult to the top of the social pecking order. Now what explains this difference? Historian Anne Guinan sees it in terms of dominance and gain. Sexual relations with a slave born of the house are a type of encounter that is perhaps too close to home, and this sexual involvement does not have a place in the social arena. In other words, she's saying that dominating your own property doesn't gain you anything, but on the other hand, dominating a peer puts you ahead of them as Guinan points out. One can put oneself ahead of one's peers in the community by penetrating one of them from behind. Note, however, that this only applies if you are the penetrator. Perceptions were quite different if you were the penetratee. Again, we see the return of the active-passive dichotomy here. In ancient Babylon, as in many historical cultures, including Greece, Rome, and even Viking Scandinavia, the distinction was not between straight and gay, but between top and bottom. You always wanted to be the top, which expressed your masculine prowess, and not the bottom, which betrayed a feminine passivity. That's how they saw it. Scorn was usually not attached to same-sex acts per se, so long as you were the one doing the penetrating. But the lowest of the low was reserved for the poor person being penetrated. So to return to our omens, penetrating another male could bode well or ill depending on the social dynamics of dominance and penetration. Dominating a peer by penetrating him augured good fortune, while penetrating your own male household slave augured ill because, well, I mean, what would be the point of it? He already belongs to you, so it's kind of like beating a dead horse. At least, that's the most sense I could make of it. So that's a bit about same-sex relations, at least among males. Now, I wish that there was something to tell about same-sex relations between females, but alas, as so often happens in history, lesbians kind of get ignored. To grossly overgeneralize, patriarchy typically views women as property to be exchanged by men, but what goes on between women is kind of a moot point. Nah. In the Mesopotamian case, with so much emphasis on penetration, you know, I almost have to wonder if they would have considered lesbian sex real sex at all? I don't know. The only potential reference to lesbians of which I am aware in Mesopotamian literature comes from the Code of Hammurabi, which references a kind of person called a salzikrum. Now, literally translated, it means daughter man. And some scholars have read this to mean lesbians. But other scholars have had wildly different readings, anything from widows to transgender individuals, so it's probably best to leave the salzacrum at that. Maybe a reference to lesbians, maybe not, we don't know. In short, hey Mesopotamia, what about same-sex relations between women? 
What? Oh, uh, that, um, mm, <clears throat> let's not talk about that. <sighs> anyway, speaking of transgender people, though, so far we've covered opposite-sex relations and same-sex relations, but what about sex beyond the binary? In fact, our compendium does have an omen for those who may transgress the boundaries of male and female. It goes like this. If a man has sexual relations with an Asinu, hardships will be unleashed from him. Asinu? What's an Asinu? Well, Anne Guinan explains. An Asinu, a character who appears in a variety of Mesopotamian sources, is a performer in an Ishtar cult and is distinguished by dress, hairstyle, and female accoutrements. Variously, a transvestite, a hermaphrodite, or eunuch, the Asinu is a transgressive figure of ambiguous or perhaps even mutable gender and overt sexual display. In other words, here we have a figure that potentially cuts across a number of different categories that we would recognize today. They might be a cross-dresser, but otherwise cisgender. They might be transgender. They might be third gender, even. They might be an intersex person. Or they might even be asexual, if a certain type of eunuch. Castration does not necessarily eliminate desire, but it might, if done before puberty. Anyway, ancient Mesopotamians would not have thought in precisely the same categories as we do today, but the Asinu shows that they were familiar with those that defied the gender binary. Now, as a matter of fact, they even had a magical spell aimed at changing a person's gender. That's right. Now, it's not quite as great as you might think. It's a little squicky, but let's hear it. Give it a chance. The royal inscription of Assyrian king Tukulti Ninurta I calls upon the goddess Ishtar to change the enemy into women and cause their manhood to dwindle away. Now, here's the squicky part, right? This is clearly intended as an attack and not as a means to help those desiring a change. But, on the other hand, you can imagine the latter potentially reading against the grain and wishing it for themselves. And this is all the more the case because the goddess invoked is Ishtar. Now, this deity, Ishtar, who is also the patron of the aforementioned Asinu, by the way, is known for changing her gender at will. As a deity of both love and war, she can be a woman or a man, and is sometimes shown bearded in Mesopotamian art. So devotees of Ishtar might well have prayed to her for a similar change in themselves. In short, while I doubt things would have been all peaches and cream for those beyond the binary, there was at least a place for them, a conceptual category, and a divine image with which they could potentially identify. So that about wraps it up for opposite same-sex and non-binary sex relations. So what have we learned of the Babylonian sexual repertoire here? Well, we know that they did it all kinds of ways, vaginal, anal, handjob, cowgirl position was a no-no, but not unknown. 
Masturbation was fine, although there seems to have been some taboos about a woman handling herself in front of a man. And it seems likely that men were savvy about female anatomy and took pride in bringing their female lovers all the way to climax. All in all, it seems that the Babylonian pleasure buffet was pretty diverse and pretty much the same as today. Except for one major exception. Is there one thing that you can think of here that is super common today, but which is completely absent from this list that we've given so far? Something featured in nearly every porn video ever across all of the internet today, but about which we haven't heard a peep yet. I'll give you a hint. It rhymes with coral. That's right, oral. We haven't heard anything about oral sex today, nor will we. There is not a trace of it anywhere in the Mesopotamian record. Not a peep! Historian Jean Botero observes, It is remarkable that in these documents or elsewhere, we have never found the slightest allusion to the sexual use of the mouth, so one may wonder whether fellatio and cunnilingus, well known in other areas at that time, for instance in Egypt, may have been the object of a particular aversion or customary prohibition. Oh man, no Babylonian BJs, no eating out? Really? Man, cancel that time travel vacation. Well, I have to be honest, I am surprised by this. I mean, if there was an aversion or a prohibition against this, I would think that the one place it'd be sure to turn up is in our omen list here. I mean, I would think that it would be at the top of the list of whoopsie doodles requiring an extra pinch of salt thrown over your shoulder to ward away the, you know, whatever. It seems like something like that would be the kind of thing that would invoke the demon Sagalhazu, or maybe even Sagalhazu's great-granddaddy. But alas, we hear not a word of it in our compendium of omens. Nor do we ever even get a hint as to why the Mesopotamians were silent on this. They certainly would have known about it since their neighbors, the Egyptians, were all about oral sex. The Egyptians even had a myth where the goddess Isis gets out the divine knee pads for a blowjob so cosmically magical that it brings her lover back from the dead. And yet, as for the Mesopotamians, nothing. It's baffling. Now, Botero's suggestion that there may have been some kind of cultural aversion or prohibition may not be far off the mark. There are certainly other ancient cultures with glaring holes in their sexual repertoire. The ancient Romans, for example, refused to go below the belt. They were anti-cunnilingus, considering it degrading for a man to perform on a woman. And we actually know the reason in their case. It's kind of interesting. See, they had much the same attitudes about penetration as the Babylonians did. And strange as it may sound, the Romans considered cunnilingus as penetration of the male by the female. Figure out that twisted logic. I think it may follow an analogy to fellatio, which is seen as the guy penetrating the girl, even though the girl is really the active partner in that act. Hmm. So, seen in that way, cunnilingus would be the girl penetrating the guy 
I guess? In any case, it doesn't have to make sense to us. It just has to make sense to them, and that is what they thought. So if the Romans' precursors, the Babylonians, were anything like them, well, maybe they saw it in terms of the penetrator, penetratee, or active-passive dichotomies that they cared so much about as well. It would seem at least a reasonable starting point for speculation. But it's still just a shot in the dark. And at the end of the day, we just don't know why the Babylonians never mention oral sex. Well, I guess sex in Babylon wasn't just like today. Close, but no cigar. In fact, no cigars in anybody's mouths. So sad. Anyway, we're just about done with our episode today, folks. But to finish off this topic and to bring our narrative to a climax, well, there's one last thing that the Babylonians were definitely down with. We already heard about the priority placed on bringing girls to orgasm. So what about guys? When a dude blew his load, did that mean something mysterious? Yes, it did. Oh boy, you bet it did. <laughs> In fact, of all the categories of omens that I could find, this one has the most. I found no less than five different omens related to the male orgasm. Check it out. If a man ejaculates in his dream and is spattered with his semen, that man will find riches. He will have financial gain. If a man has sexual relations and then in the same night he ejaculates in his dream and is spattered with his semen, that man will find riches. He will have financial gain. If a man has sexual relations with a woman and then ejaculates and is spattered with his semen, it is good. That man will have financial gain. If a man has sexual relations and then in the same night he ejaculates, that man will experience heavy expenses. Hmm, better watch out for that one, I guess. And finally, if a man persistently has sexual relations with a woman and always ejaculates repeatedly, he will die in his prime. Ouch, always ejaculates repeatedly. That sounds, that sounds painful. Kind of like that condition where you can't stop hiccuping, except, <laughs> yeah, well, in that case, I'm not sure if dying in your prime would be a curse or maybe a blessing. Well, I suppose this could just be a reference to multiple orgasms, which is actually a thing for guys. You can train yourself to do it with practice. Better not, though, according to the Babylonians, or if you do, well, at least you'll die happy. So... That's it, folks. That is how ancient peoples did it. That's the Babylonian sexual repertoire. So close to today, yet so far away. I hope you learned something today. I know I did. Gonna stay far away from the demon Sagalhazu, I tell you that much. Anyway... We'll be back next month with another installment of our super deep dive series, Sex in the Third Reich, when we'll be talking about the perspective of women in Nazi Germany. And in the meantime, we'll have some short shorts filling out the picture of gender in Babylon. I already teased you with the business nuns. That will be coming up for you. We'll also have a look at the question of temple prostitution and maybe throw a surprise or two in there as well. So I'll see you then. Folks, 
If you'd like to support what we're doing here, you can subscribe, rate, and review, and you can support the show on Patreon. $5 a month gets you a portrait in the time period and culture of your choosing. I will draw you as a hard Assyrian warrior standing proud and inviolate. Or maybe I'll draw you staring a little too long at something just outside the picture frame. Whatever you want, I'll make you look awesome, I promise. You can support us at www.patreon.com forward slash btnewberg. That's patreon.com slash b-t-n-e-w-b-e-r-g. All right, I'll see you next time. I'm B.T. Newberg, and this is the history of sex. Podcast theme music mixed from tracks by Kevin McLeod. For additional credits, references, photos, and more, see our website at www.historyofsexpod.com. I am Saddle Hazard.